Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large at EdSource. Welcome, John. Pleasure to be here. This week, we'll be taking a look at a part of the education system that's too often overlooked, continuation high schools, where students go when they're not succeeding in regular schools. We'll also be taking an audio field trip to El Dorado County. That's courtesy of the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. We'll also be discussing what may be the final vote, don't hold your breath, by the State Board of Education on its long drawn out struggle to get U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos to go along with the state's plan under the Every Student Succeeds Act. But before we go there, wanted to get our reporter Nico Savage into the hot seat. He's been looking at continuation high schools. Welcome, Nico. Thank you for having me. Well, you looked at close to 500 continuation high schools in California, and specifically at chronic absenteeism rates, which the state now is starting to look at and is gathering for the first time. It's likely to appear on the California School Dashboard as a way to evaluate how schools are doing. And just to clarify, chronic absenteeism is defined as a student who is absent 10% or more. And in a district where the average is 180 days, that's most districts in the state, that's 18 days or so per year. And Nico, what you found was very high absenteeism rates in continuation schools. Right. Continuation schools have much higher rates of chronic absenteeism uh, than their sort of traditional counterparts, about four times higher, in fact, at continuation schools compared to traditional high schools, where the average chronic absenteeism rate is about 15% in that traditional environment. At continuation schools, it's uh, nearly 60%. Okay, so that doesn't mean 60% of kids are absent right. on any one day. It means that 60% are absent for 10% or more during the entire year. That doesn't mean 60% of kids are absent on any Correct. particular day. It means 60% of those kids over the course of the year are absent for 10% or more of the 180 days where they're supposed to be in school. Right. And remember, chronic absenteeism is not just a measure of unexcused absences, of truancies. It's a measure of those and all other days that students are out of class. So whether that's an excused absence for something like an illness or class days missed for a suspension, for instance. So... Continuation schools do take kids who probably absent quite a lot in their regular school, so you would expect higher absenteeism rates, right? Right, and that's what you hear from, from sort of advocates for continuation schools. They note that the distribution of students in a continuation school environment is not the same as the distribution in a in a traditional high school, where, you know, in the traditional school, you've got some students who are really motivated to come to school, uh, some kids who are not that motivated to come to school. They're sort of a mix. In continuation schools, it's entirely the kids who have basically not had success elsewhere. Continuation schools exist to serve students who are 16 years and older who are at risk of not graduating from high school. And that's typically because they've fallen behind in their credits elsewhere. And that's often because they're maybe missing class. Uh, they are you know, falling behind in some way. And uh, as folks who work in continuation environments will tell you, they bring those problems with them. And as a result, your continuation school environment is entirely made up of students uh, who have had trouble elsewhere and who are some of the most vulnerable high school students in the state. 
But at the same time, right. these are small schools. They're getting a lot more personal attention. Wouldn't you expect that the absenteeism rate to really come down significantly? Well, this is one of the concerns that a lot of folks who work in continuation environments have with this measure of chronic absenteeism. Uh, it's such a binary figure. You either are or you aren't missing at least 10% of school days. And what they note is that students who are coming into continuation schools are missing a whole lot more than 10% of school days in a lot of cases. They might be missing at their traditional school uh, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% of their school days. And if you're at the continuation school um, and you take on a student who's been missing this much class, you can do a lot of things really well. You can have a good uh, environment for that student. You can have a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention and you can bring down their number of absences, maybe by a, by a large amount. But if that student still misses over 10% of school days, they're going to be counted as chronically absent. So it's one of the concerns is that how well does that statistic, which is becoming very popular and becoming part of the dashboard and all of these other school accountability metrics, how well does that capture the job that continuation schools do? Well, that may be, but let's say a kid has was absent 80%, chronically absent right. 80%, and now is back down, down to 50%. Well, that may be an improvement, but that kid is probably not going to be graduating high school if they are at 50%. They're missing 50% of the classes. That's certainly true, and, and this was a concern um, brought up by Russ Romberger from the uh, Dropout Research Project who said, listen, you can't turn kids' academic trajectories around if they're not in class. If you're not in class, you're not going to be learning. And so, yeah, it is a sort of foundational thing that, uh, it, uh, you know, these high chronic absenteeism rates point to issues that, that uh, continuation schools are having in, in getting students to attend consistently. Now, you did find that it, there are big differences. Some continuation schools appear to be doing quite well. Others, right. not so much, at least based on this data. Mm -hmm. But as a sector, it does raise some questions about how effective these schools are to deal with a really important sector of the school population. I mean, about 60,000 kids in, in, mm -hmm. in these schools at any one time. Mm -hmm. And for many of them, this is kind of their last chance before dropping out potentially. Right. And, and this is one of the big concerns about continuation schools and about certain uh, alternative environments is, you know, if these are done well, if the interventions in continuation schools are effective, you can take students uh, who are who are looking like they're heading for dropping out and you can get them reengaged in school. You can get them back on track. You can get them uh, working toward a diploma and recovering credits and, and um, being able to graduate. If they aren't, though, if, if those schools are not as effective as they as they need to be, and that can be for any number of reasons, um, if they aren't, they're, they're, they're not doing a whole lot. They're sort of functioning as this off-ramp uh, from school, which is one of the concerns that, that, that folks have uh, about continuation schools if they're not done well. What, what did you find in terms of the schools that appeared to be doing a pretty good job? What, were there any characteristics that you identified or the administrators identified as to why kids are su succeeding? What, what you hear very often is that people are a big part of it and really the teachers that you have. Um, you mentioned the smaller environment in a continuation school. Those teachers are, are dealing with kind of core groups of students and uh, the relationships that they're able to, to have with those students can be a lot closer. And if you have the best teachers in that environment, that can really make kids 
a lot more motivated to come. That's what you hear from, from folks who work with these schools. Now, what you also hear uh, is that it often hasn't been the case that those schools are able to offer the best teachers to students or offer the best resources to students because they are continuation schools. That and these means, are tough kids. I mean, sure, for the most part, and, tough and to educate. These are small uh, enrollment schools. They're made up of, of students who are more likely to be from lower income backgrounds. Their families might not wield the same amount of political power in a school district as other students do. And so it can be sort of easy for, politically easy for uh, districts to shortchange continuation schools, to not give them the resources they need. And, and this is something I heard from, uh, from several officials who have been involved in continuation schools, use them as a place to put underperforming teachers or, or, or teachers who are looking to, to sort of spend some time before they go into retirement. Uh, th those were examples that I heard from continuation school officials thinking that, well, this way they're not dealing with that many kids uh, and it's not such a big deal. At the same time, I, I have met some really dedicated teachers who really yep. are committed to trying to keep these kids in the system. Definitely. One of the schools that I visited, uh, Boynton High School in San Jose, you know, there's a teacher there who scraped together a bunch of donated equipment to build a music studio in his classroom and his classroom is filled with students at lunchtime who want to use the studio. Another uh, teacher who uses his background as a refugee uh, to kind of connect with students who are struggling. So some really dedicated people there. And then you turn around and look at Boynton's chronic absenteeism rate, and it's 45%, which is by far the highest in, in its school district, Campbell Union. Um, and so there, there's that question of what does that tell us about the students that they're serving? What does that tell us about Boynton's efforts? Uh, and what does that tell us about chronic absenteeism as a measure? And again, 45% is not 45% absent, but 45% right. of the kids are absent 10% or more of the school year. Don't want to go down a data rabbit hole, but you also found some problems with the data at, at quite a number of these schools. Right. So the 2016 to 17 school year was the first year that California began uh, collecting its data on chronic absenteeism and uh, posting it publicly. And we've already identified some problems with that data. There are a couple hundred schools that filled out in that data collection that none of their students had any absences in the 2016 to 17 school year. So that can't be. That didn't happen. So some sort of error happened there. We've also heard from a couple of continuation schools that say, uh, when I went to them and said, hey, here's your uh, chronic absenteeism rate listed in the state database, they said, nope, that's not correct. And there's the potential that there could be a sort of flaw in the data for a lot of continuation schools. This has to do with how continuation schools track attendance. It's it's a little complicated, but it's done based on how many hours students are in class versus how many days students are in class. And so then that has to get translated when it goes into the state's data system. So uh, there's the potential for flaws there. And what I've heard from California Department of Education is that they are looking into that potential, but they don't know yet whether or not it's led to uh, serious or widespread problems with that absenteeism database. The question that's going to be before the state board is what they do with this 2016 to 17 year of data, knowing that there are some flaws in it. I mean, do they use that data as their baseline going forward in the dashboard? Or do they say, you know, let's take a mulligan on this one. Let's use the 2017 to 18 data when Department of Education officials are saying there's going to be fewer errors. Well, you've identified some problem with the data, but it has allowed us and hopefully the state to take a closer look at these continuation schools and this really important population. I mean, there's a lot of efforts at mainstream or regular public schools to keep kids in school, alternative discipline policies, but 
not enough attention on the kids in these smaller school environments, which really provide opportunities, but it appears that despite some of the data problems that you've identified, that kids really aren't attending to the extent that they should in order to succeed. Right, and and this is the whole uh, concern that, that folks have with, with these continuation schools is they're serving some of the most vulnerable students in California, and if they're not able to reach them, that this is sort of it. This is the last stop, potentially, before uh, a student is dropping out. Okay, well, Nico, really important topic, really important subject, and we hope you all stay on this and report back as to what you find. Will do. We're back here with John Fenstewell. John, you heard our conversation with Nico. Any thoughts? Well, that's a fascinating discussion the two of you had. Continuation schools have been outside of the accountability school system for a number of years now. And so there is an effort to integrate it back into and use some of the same measures. But okay, as you, wait, just to how, what do you mean it was outside the accountability system? It was literally not part of No Child Left Behind, and so we have a gap when it really they've been operating independently without those kind of measures to understand their effectiveness. And we want them to be part of the system, and the question is, should the continuation schools be part of the districts from which the students came or not? So there's an effort to create uniform criteria like chronic absenteeism, but to talked about. It's really hard to take a measure and apply it to continuation schools. But, you know, it struck me that the dilemma about continuation schools, a chronic absenteeism, is kind of related to a discussion we had about proficiency on tests, which is binary too. Do you give credit for students who have gotten better but are not yet proficient? Or, and it's related to chronic absenteeism, do you recognize that students come to school more often, but they're still chronically absent? You don't want to discourage continuation schools from bringing in all students who need sort of a boost, or perhaps some of them are already dropouts who are wandering back into school. And so you want to sort of light the fire for students who have been alienated or just haven't been part of their regular schools, but you want them to come back. And so you want to measure progress, but you also want to encourage these schools to bring these students there. It's a dilemma. At our last EdSource Symposium last fall, I moderated a a panel on continuation schools. We had three terrific teachers, uh, Mariano Gutierrez from Mountain View and Maury Elliott, who is with a charter school in Sacramento. I was really impressed with their commitment and the work that they're doing. There's some really good work out there, so need to credit that and not discourage this at the same time we kind of come up with measures. Okay, well, we are going to move away from data and these small schools, but we're going to another small school district that is actually also very much outside the limelight. We're going to go to a small district in Gold Country, the Motherlode School District, courtesy of the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, and uh, Anna Tentakulis, who now works for CCEE, as many of you know it. And uh, Anna went to Motherlode School District with CCEE because they are one of 228 school districts in the state that have been identified for getting assistance from the state because of the performance of their special education students. This is part of a podcast series that CCEE will be producing, but we thought we would bring you a sneak preview of the podcast called the California School Field Trip. And here's Anna Titakoulis at the Motherlode School District in Gold Country. 
For this, our very first episode, we venture into a small rural school district on the western slope of the Sierra Nevadas, a place where the so-called 49ers came with big dreams of striking it rich during California's gold rush. This is in the heart of gold country, although we're not really a place you can find on the map. That's Marcy Guthrie, superintendent of the Motherlode Union School District. That's right, Motherlode, as in hitting the Motherlode, seems appropriate given the district is nestled among so many historic mining towns. And the students here seem happy. I like my teacher. I like my class. The teachers are nice. I think the teachers actually do okay, and I think the learning here is perfect. Okay, so if most kids here think the learning is great, why was Motherlode identified this year for needing extra support under the state's new school accountability system? The official term for that support is differentiated assistance, but some call it technical assistance. In Motherlode, English learners are making steady gains based on California school dashboard data. But Superintendent Guthrie says it's their students with disabilities who are falling through the cracks. When I got the call, hey, Motherlode's been identified for technical assistance, I had already told my leadership team, I believe we will be called. I believe we will be identified for technical assistance. And they looked at me with shock and said, really? Guthrie says it feels like Motherlode is now entering the great unknown because this is the first time the state is moving forward with differentiated assistance. Roughly 230 other school districts in the state were also flagged for needing this kind of special support. It's all part of California's new approach to school improvement, which is centered on helping districts instead of punishing them. This is not like the old program improvement process. Ed Manansala is the superintendent of schools in El Dorado County. He oversees the differentiated assistance process between the county and the Motherlode Union School District. He says in this new school improvement process, county offices of education will be helping districts first pinpoint the root causes of their problems. Once districts have a clear focus, they have a choice. They can keep working with their county office to get things back on track, or districts can turn to the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, my organization. Another option is working with another partner agency. Manansala says whoever districts turn to, the ultimate goal is to support them in any way possible, much like a coach supports an athlete. Someone who's going to come alongside, fully understand what my goals are, who's going to provide a level of technical expertise, push and support to that process. So it's not our agenda, it's their agenda. In El Dorado County, the folks who are working closely with Motherlode are... Kevin Monsma, Deputy Superintendent, Educational Services. Tamara Clay, El Dorado County SELPA Director. Monsma and Clay say the key to all of this is building trust with Motherlode Superintendent and the educators, school staff, and parents in the district who are volunteering their time to be on a special committee responsible for implementing changes. Monsma and Clay say they don't come in with checklists and timelines. Instead, they try to bring a spirit of curiosity and humility to the table. I will tell you it's easy to say. It's actually very hard to live because we have a natural inclination like, I think I could solve that problem if we just did X. And to pull yourself back to say, what are the next three questions I should ask? Or how can I get this person who's there on the district team to give some more feedback, and wait is actually much more difficult than one would think. 
Well, certainly it's tempting to say, okay, we have six sessions, so let's plan them all out. And exactly, you you say this, and I'll say that, and here's where we'll take the group. And it's just... It's not linear. No, and if it's really a facilitative process, then you really have to have that spirit of where will the group take us as much as where will we take the group. Marcy Guthrie, Motherlode superintendent, realizes there's a long road ahead for her district team and the school community. But she says she's ready and willing to make meaningful changes so all her students get the education they deserve. You don't ever want to miss the opportunity to leverage something like this for the betterment of the organization, right? So if we said, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll go through this process, we, we would have done a good job. But I think there's something to be said for and we have others who are coming along with us and watching us that might help us bring our best game. I'm your host, Anna Tintagolis, Senior Communications Manager for the CCEE. Thanks for listening. That was the inaugural episode of the California School Field Trip produced by the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. To listen to the full episode and upcoming podcasts, go to CCEE's website at ccee-ca.org. Well, John, before I let you go, the State Board is having a special meeting this week in Sacramento in addition to their bi-monthly meetings. Uh, What's that all about? Well, we've been talking about the state's plan for the Every Student Succeeds Act. That's the successor to No Child Left Behind. The state has to come up with a plan to show how it's going to turn around lowest performing schools, about uh, 400 of them, in exchange for about $2.4 billion in federal money. We've been talking about this for months. This may be for a while the last time we talk about it because at the special board meeting, the state board may approve the plan that it negotiated, that its staff negotiated with representatives of Betsy DeVos, the secretary of education, her office. They had objections to the state plan. They've worked out a number of compromises, and they're going to vote on them on Thursday. So why did they have to have a special meeting? I mean, they had a long meeting couple of, was a couple of weeks ago. That's right. And uh, couldn't nail down the vote. Well, why another meeting? Well, partly they had to figure some things out. One of the things is how you're going to select the 400 schools. It's actually more than they have to select under the law. It's about 100 more than they have to. And they had to figure out, you know, what are the criteria? The state, the federal government didn't like the, the, the criteria that it chose. And so it's using the dashboard, which we've talked about, to select these schools and some other details, too. And so, you know, the staff is recommending that they pass the plan, but a number of board members have objections to the compromises, I think. Not that uh, they recognize a good faith effort, but they think some things, such as uh, how you measure the progress of English learners, they like the way the state came up with a measurement. So they may apply for a waiver after the plan has been submitted so that they go back to the old system. They're really in tent on having a state-driven plan without federal interference. But just let me ask you, what's your reading of the tea leaves? Does the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education, under Betsy DeVos, aren't they, are they inclined to approve California, California's plan? What, well, what would it be in it for them to deny California's plan? Well, I think they've approved 38 states and they've used the same criteria. I think that they recognize, you know, as long as we do the requirements under the law as they interpret that, that the state will get its plan approved. 
I have to say, this is a contrast to what the Trump administration is doing in other areas. Just this week, we saw the administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, going after California's emission standards, automobile emission standards, and it and really taking on California, trying to undo them. There doesn't seem to be the same inclination to do that uh, with California's education plan. Well, staff said that, in fact, there was a really good faith effort to negotiate these changes with the with uh, Betsy DeVos's key administrator. His name's Jason Botel. And Every Student Succeeds Act was written to permit flexibility. California has a plan. It would be hard for the federal government to deny it, and I don't see there's this animus that may be related to other areas, lots of other areas between California and federal government. Not here. Okay, and they do need to reach an agreement in order for California to get these $2.4 billion in federal funds, right? That's right. Before the fall, you know, one of the board member, Sue Burr, continues to saying, you know, this is a question of the tail wagging the dog. She reminds that uh, the board members that the federal funds is only about 10% of what the state spends. So in this case, the tail is the federal government and the dog is California. Not sure that's necessarily the best metaphor. Well, I've heard it often. Okay. Well, John, that uh, wraps it up for this week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. See you next week.